good to see everybody out. We're glad for your presence. We do have those that are visiting. We're glad for your presence. And uh, we invite everybody, please, get your Bibles, follow along. We get a Bible out of the pew, follow along. Get your electronic Bible out and follow along. Important that we open the Word of the Lord together as we study from the Scriptures. And we'll trust that our time will be profitable, and certainly it will anytime you open and study the Bible. If you'll just listen and kind of take it into your mind and absorb it, uh, certainly will be a blessing and a benefit. <clears throat> a few years ago, I was preaching in Columbia, South America, and Lord willing, next Thursday, Thursday week, we'll be traveling once again, and we announced that. We certainly appreciate would covet your prayers uh, for that work. Uh, but we were in uh, Cali, Cali, Columbia. It's the third biggest city, and we were at the house of Gisela. That's the lady on the right. And right next to her was Paola and some of her other kids. But, but anyway, we're having a home Bible study, and we were talking about various topics and various things. And, uh, but anyway, what happened was, uh -oh. What happened, though, uh, about a week or so after, I heard that uh, Paola, uh, the girl that was sitting next to her mom, uh, she obeyed the gospel, and I had wrote her, and we were friends on Facebook, and I was chatting a couple weeks after that, and, and we were just kind of talking, and she said, uh, this Melchizedek guy, what, what's, that, what's that all about? And just sort of kind of something hadn't learned much about, and well, it got me thinking, it's like, well, you know, I guess maybe she didn't know. There might be others who don't know. And uh, I thought, well, okay, that would be an interesting topic. And it is. It's a, it's a very profitable topic. When we understand the concept of Melchizedek and who Melchizedek was and how that relates to us and what we need to know, uh, it's really, really, really quite interesting. Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. That's what we titled the lesson. And what we're going to do is just sort of look at the text. There's not a, uh, an abundance of texts that actually mention the name. There's only two passages in the Old Testament, and then the book of Hebrews is where we'll wind up in the last part of the study. All right, let's just begin by beginning the book of Genesis where we are introduced to this character named Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. In the book of Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And so here, Melchizedek is just introduced that he is a priest, and he's also a king. He's a king of Salem. Salem is a term that means peace. He was the king of peace, a place called peace. Some suggest that probably may have reference to Jerusalem, but be that as may, he was the king of peace. And it's kind of interesting that he just sort of comes on the scene here. There's no historical background about him. There's no genealogy, uh, genealogical record about Melchizedek, and that's an important uh, fact to understand. He's just introduced here in Genesis chapter 14 that he is priest of the Most High God, the Most High God that Abraham served, that, uh, of course, the father of the Jewish nation, that is the true living God, the God of heaven and earth, of Jehovah, the existent one. And so we are introduced to Melchizedek. He is a king, a king of peace, and he is a priest of the Most High God. In verse 19 it says, And he blessed him, that is Melchizedek, he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now Abraham, he served the true living God, the Most High God, the one that created heaven and earth, the true and living God, and Melchizedek blessed him, it tells us in verse 19. And that's an important facet because the Hebrew is going to bring out a point about that. 
because the greater blesses the lesser. And here we have Melchizedek, he's blessing Abraham, and in the Jewish mind, of course, Abraham, he was, he was like, he, he was the father of the Jewish nation, and so he was highly exalted. But here we have Melchizedek blessing uh, uh, Abraham, or Abram at this time. Verse 20. And bless the Most High God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, that is Abraham, gave, gave him tithes of all. That is, he gave the tithes to uh, Melchizedek. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And that's an interesting fact. And the Hebrews are going to make a point about that. And so here we are. We're just introduced to this character named Melchizedek. He's priest of the Most High God. All the Jews would have accepted that. It's in the, in the sacred record of the book of Genesis. And we just introduced to him, and that's it. Don't have any record of his pedigree. He was priest of the Most High God. Everybody accepted that. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him tithes. And uh, that's about all we know from that account. And then the next passage that mentions Melchizedek, it's in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it is a messianic psalm. This passage is quoted several times in the New Testament. It says it's the Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord, that is Jehovah, Yahweh, said unto my Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord. Jehovah said unto my Lord. And of course, Jesus makes a point about that, is that David, by inspiration, says, Jehovah said unto my Lord, and David, of course, was like the great-great-great-grandfather of the Messiah. And Jesus' question was, how, 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 how could David, by inspiration, call the Messiah his descendant Lord? And of course, they really couldn't figure that out. And, of course, we understand. He's only a descendant of David physically. That is, the, 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 the physical side, the spiritual side. Jesus always existed because he's part of the eternal Godhead. And so Jehovah said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule you in the midst of your enemies. So this Messiah, he's going to rule, he's going to reign. So he's going to be a king as we gather there from verse 2. Verse 3, your people shall be willing in the day of your power. So here, the, this Messiah, he's going to be king. He's going to rule. He's going to rule over the enemies. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. He's going to rule over his people. That is, those that willingly submit. Your people shall be willing the day of your power, because that's the only kind of service that God accepts. It's willing service. We serve God because we willingly do that. Nobody put a gun to my head and said, All right, McKibben, you're going to Lakeside, and you're going to worship, you're going to worship God. It doesn't work that way. We come willingly. We come because we want to. And that's the only service that will be accepted. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of the earth. So this Messiah, he is going to rule. He is going to be king, as we see there, verses 1, 2, and 3. But he's also going to be a priest. Because verse 4 prophesies, the Lord has sworn and will not, uh, will not repent or relent or change his mind about that which is an interesting fact. God could have just said, you're going to be a priest, but he says it with an oath, so not only does he promise it, but then he promises it with an oath, and that's two immutable things of God. Jehovah has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we are introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Don't read anything anymore in the Old Testament about that. And then 
Bam! Here in Psalm 110, the Messiah, he's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's all clear to us because it's all been revealed in the New Testament, but they would read these things in the Old Testament, and you would just sort of scratch your head, and, you know, you kind of wonder about this, and, and they would search, and they would try to figure out things, and, uh, as we see there in 1 Peter chapter 1. And even the angels desired to look in these things that God prophesied, and, you know, they just didn't, it wasn't clear. They just, they didn't get it. They, it didn't all make sense. But now, when we come to the New Testament, of course, it's all revealed. That the Messiah, he is going to be king, and he's going to be priest. And he's going to be king and priest at the same time. Now, our religious friends who say that, well, Jesus, well, he's not really king upon his throne yet. That, you know, he's going to be, he's going to re rule in his kingdom soon in the millennial reign, in the 1,000-year reign, soon to come, they tell us. But it's not true. That, that's just not true. Because if Jesus is not king now, ruling upon his throne, then he is not priest because he would be king and priest at the same time. That's what this prophecy talks about as other prophecies that Jesus would serve both as king and as priest at the same time. So if he is not king now, he's not priest now. And if he's not priest now, well, the implications of that is we don't really have a sacrifice now because our great high priest offered a sacrifice. But if, it, if he's not a king now, he's not a priest. So there's, there's all kinds of ramifications of this erroneous doctrine of premillennialism. All right. So there we have the two texts in the Old Testament that talked about Melchizedek. Then we come to Hebrews. And Hebrews chapters 5, a little bit of chapter 6 and chapter 7, is going to talk about this whole idea of Melchizedek and how that relates to Jesus and that Jesus is a priest after the order or the similitude, the likeness of Melchizedek's priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest is taken from among men and is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. All right, so there you have kind of this function of the high priest. Here's the function of, of the high priest, and in, in a more general way, priests, they were involved in offering sacrifices to God and uh, gifts, and etc., and offering worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have the Levitical priesthood and then, of course, the high priesthood of Aaron and his descendants. And they, the people brought their sacrifices and, and their gifts to the priest, and then it was offered to God. And so, uh, very important office. And they uh, are uh, taken from being ordained. That is, God appoints them to be this. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are wayward? For he himself is also beset with weaknesses, that is, Taken from men among men, that is because they could relate, and and for this reason he ought, as for the people, so all so also for himself to offer for sin. So the high priest and the priest in general, they would go offering sacrifices for the sins of the people, but also for themselves because they they were sinful too. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. That's a, another important facet. You just don't kind of go along and say, hey, I think I'll be a high priest. I think I'll be a, a special priest for God. I think I'll serve in this capacity. No, you had to be called to that, to that service, to that work in the Old Testament order. And not that you would just sort of just assume it. It's like saying, hey, I think I'll be president, uh, you know, of the United States. Right? You, you, just don't, you just don't automatically make president because that's something that you take a notion to do. There, there's sort of a process of getting appointed. 
And so it is spiritually, if you're going to be a priest, you have to be appointed. You have to be called of God. God called Aaron to be a priest and his descendants. It says, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said unto him, you are my son, today have I begotten you. That involved his death on the cross and his resurrection. When it says, you are my son, today have I begotten you, Paul, in the book of Acts, he applies it to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus came, he offered himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, and he was buried, but on the third day he was raised from the dead. And therefore, as the resurrected Lord, then he ascended back on high to be a priest and a king. In verse 6, he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrew, he makes application to Jesus that Jesus didn't take this upon himself. He was called of God to serve in this capacity. That is to be a king and to be a priest. Who in the days of the flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cries and tears unto him that was able to save from death, and he was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Now, what does it mean, yet learned he obedience? Did he not understand the concept of obedience? No, he always understood the concept of obedience because Jesus was perfect. He never committed sin. What does it mean that he learned obedience? He learned what it meant to obey God and then suffer for it. He did learn to experience that. And so yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. So Jesus came, called of God, offered himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, and would then be raised from the dead, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so this whole idea of Melchizedek, very important. As you go back historically, way back there in the book of Genesis chapter 14, prophesied in Psalm 110, it comes to the application of Jesus. And the fulfillment that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have many things to say. Hard to explain seeing you're dull of hearing. So the writer just has to kind of stop. And he says, you know, you're, you're kind of dull of hearing. If you, if you look up that word dull, it means kind of, kind of lazy and slothful. It's like, it's like a teacher at school. And a teacher is sitting here talking about mathematics. And the kids, you know, they're like daydreaming. And they're... They're doodling and they're like writing notes and they're not paying, they're not paying a bit more attention to anything. You're going to have a hard time explaining to the kids in the class and so the teacher's got to stop saying, all right, class, come, come on, pay attention. If you're going to get this, you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to apply yourself and turn your brains on. You know, put your thinking caps on. That's what our first grade teacher would say. Put your thinking caps on. I mean, if you're, not, if you're not going to think, if you're not going to concentrate, you're not going to get it. And that's what the Hebrew does. He sort of has to stop and sort of gives exhortations like, okay, now, class, pay attention. You're going to have to listen. And so he goes through this long exhortation through the end of chapter 5. And actually the first part of chapter 6 talking about how we've got to pay attention. We've got to get our ears on. We've got to get attuned to this. Because, hey, we can get it, but you've got to be listening. And so after kind of getting their attention, uh, then kind of the end of chapter 6, you're going to pick back up on these thoughts. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. That is, God made these promises, and God, which would have been sufficient, God said it, 
and it's impossible for God to lie. So that would have been something that's immutable, that is unchangeable. God just promised it, but it's going to happen because God said it. But then God confirmed it by an oath. He made an oath to Abraham. He made an oath through David in Psalm 110. Uh, about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so not only is the promise immutable, but then the oath would have been a second unchangeable, immutable thing. And so he says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which with enter into that within the veil, where, where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament high priest would go through through the holy place, in, through the veil, into the most holy place once a year. But only the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place. And this corresponds to the New Testament order, that is the holy place, the church, and the most holy place, heaven, and the veil, that is life and death, that separates us of, of time and, and our constraints here. Jesus passed through that and entered into heaven as a forerunner. Well, what's a forerunner? Or run somebody that goes before to, to proclaim and to announce somebody. It's kind of like when the President of the United States gives the State of the Union message to the joint session of Congress, and generally uh, generals are there and the Supreme Court's there. Presidents just don't come bebopping out. There's a guy that comes out and says, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. That's, that guy's the forerunner. He's announcing and going before the President. And Jesus enters into heaven for us as a forerunner, opening the way for us to then to follow him also into heaven. And as he goes into heaven, he offers this perfect sacrifice before the throne of God, and then to serve as our faithful high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then notice as we pick up then in chapter 7, the writer says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So, go back to Genesis chapter 14. Hey, Jesus is after Melchizedek. It goes back to Genesis 14. The Jews said, yeah, yeah, we know Genesis 14. Yeah, we know that story. You just got three little verses that, that describes uh, uh, about Melchizedek there in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18, 19, and 20. Yeah, we, we remember about him. And uh, so this Melchizedek, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part, that is the tithe, that is the ten percent, gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation the king of righteousness, and after that also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So you got several things that are sort of tied in and, and interesting about this Melchizedek. He was the king of righteousness, he was the king of peace, and... Uh, uh, so, kind of corresponds to Jesus. Then it says in verse 3, and a lot of people kind of get mm, sort of kind of uh, out of sorts about this. It says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest, uh, priest continually. Now, the point is, not saying about Melchizedek, he was some sort of extraordinary type of person, and, you know, he just, no. The point is, without father, without mother, there's no record. There's no genealogical record. There was no pedigree associated with Melchizedek. He is just simply introduced, talked about as priest of the Most High God. All the Jews would have accepted it. Abraham accepted it. 
And he's the father of the Jewish nation. And if Abraham accepted, it was given by inspiration, recorded in the book of Genesis, then this is actually what happened. But there's no pedigree. There's no genealogy. You see, in the Jewish mind, it was critically important, this whole idea of genealogy. I mean, they, they had all these genealogical records. I mean, you read about throughout the Old Testament, you have these different lists of all these names that are very hard to pronounce, and, uh, and you think, well, what's all that about? I mean, it just seems like a bunch of fluff, and it really doesn't make sense. It does make sense. It was absolutely critically important to show genealogy. If you were going to serve in the priesthood, you had to show by the genealogical records that, yeah, you were a descendant of, uh, of, the, of the tribe of Levi and one of the sons of Aaron. That had to be established by proof, by divine proof. And that is like when they come back out of the captivity. Unless you can show the records or the Urim of the Thummim by divine revelation, give confirmation that you're a descendant of Abraham, you're not going to, or a descendant of, of Levi, you're not going to serve in the priesthood. That was critically important of, of establishing that. So genealogies were really important for that aspect and just to be part of the Jewish nation. But here you got, you got Melchizedek. There's no record about his genealogy. It wasn't important. It was accepted that he was a priest without some sort of genealogical record. They accepted that. Don't have anything about it to say, what's his pedigree? What's, what's his lineage? Wasn't important. You could be a priest like Melchizedek without genealogical record because Jesus could not be, by genealogical record, a priest after the order of Levi because you had to be a descendant of Levi. But he was a descendant, of course, of Judah. That was another one of the 12 tribes of Israel or Jacob. So Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. How many characters in the Old Testament are we introduced to? And they'll talk about, you know, they, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. You know, Nahor begat Abram, and Abram begat uh, 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 Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve sons. You got all these records, and then Abraham died, and Isaac died, and Jacob died, and the twelve sons died. You, you had beginning, you had end. Melchizedek, no, we're just introduced to him there in Genesis chapter 14. Don't have anything about when he began, when he was born, when he became priest. None, none of that was recorded. Don't have anything about the end of life. Don't have anything about him passing away. It's just like he was there. And so that, that in, in, in a spiritual way, in a, in a figurative way, but made likened to the Son of God, abides a priest for, uh, continually. You read about the, te- the priest in the Old Testament. Well, so-and-so was a priest. Well, he died, and then this one was a priest. Well, that one died, and then this one was a priest, and he died, and that one uh, was appointed priest. Uh, you don't have that with Melchizedek. He's just introduced, and according to Genesis chapter 14, that's all we know. So all we know, he was always a priest from that aspect. And then notice verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch, Patriarch, that is the father, that idea of patriarch is father rule. Even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth or the tithe of all the spoils uh, from this uh, conflict that he, had, that he was involved in. And barely they that are of the sons of Levi who received the office of priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of all the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they are descendants of Abraham. So here you had Abraham, he had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 sons. And of the 12 sons, 
the tribe of Levi was selected to be the, the, the priesthood of the uh, Israelite uh, economy, the Israelite nation. So here you've got Abraham, and you've got uh, his descendant to Levi. And Levi, he had the commandment that all the other tribes, where they would work, they would bring their tithes to the, to the temple, and then that would support the Levites in their work, because their work, their work was uh, spiritual, of uh, working at the temple, offering sacrifices. And you know, we just said offering sacrifices, but do you know all that, what all, all that would entail? You'd take this animal, you'd have to slit its throat and drain the blood, and you'd offer the blood, and you had to build the fire, and, you know, uh, you had to burn these animals, you had to clean up ashes, had to carry stuff out, uh, washing things. You know, there was a lot of work in offering these animal sacrifices. I guess if you went to a meat house, you would see all the blood and everything, and always clean it up. It's a, it's a big job. I guess if you clean fish. Or if you, you, you kill a deer and you clean it yourself, you know, there's a lot of work, a lot of mess in that. Well, there was a lot of work that the Levites had. And their support came from the other tribes, given their tithes from their, uh, their work in agriculture or whatever they were involved in. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 7, But he whose descent is not counted uh, from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So here's the one, Melchizedek, who just sort of come up on the scene here. And what you have is that, well, he didn't have any uh, genealogy. He didn't have any record of his descent. But uh, it's not counted from him that received tithes of Abraham. But Abraham was giving him tithes. Abraham said, well, now wait a minute, can you give me your genealogical record? What's your pedigree? What, 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 where, where'd you come from? No. Abraham just gave him tithes and blessed him that had the promises. And without contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Kind of an uh, axiomatic truth. The less is blessed by the greater. So if Melchizedek was blessing Abraham, by implication then, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And here men that, that die receive tithes, but there he receives him of whom it is witness that he lives. That is, the only record that we have about Melchizedek, he lives. No record about him dying. And in verse 9, and as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So here you go back into history there and you have Abraham encountering Melchizedek and here you have Abraham giving tithes but Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation father of Isaac the father grandfather of Jacob and then Jacob had the 12 sons one of them being Levi and on down then you have the Levitical priesthood established in the days of Moses there and so here you have Levi the Levitical priesthood of the descendants of Abraham Giving ties to Melchizedek. Remember. So here, here, you, here, you got, here you got Levi giving ties through Abraham to the greater one, that is to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessing him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? 
if everything was hunky-dory in the Levitical priesthood and that's all we needed, the Hebrew writer's reasoning, why do we have Psalm 110? What in the world that in the Bible for? That is the Old Testament Bible, the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Old Testament Scriptures. Why would there be Psalm 110? No need for Psalm 110. Everything's perfect, hunky-dory there with the Levitical priesthood. It's all that we need is right here in the Law of Moses. We don't need anything else. Well, why would we have Psalm 110 that there's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek being promised, even by an oath, as Psalm 110 talks about? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. But there was prophesied there was going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here you had in the Old Testament the Levitical priesthood, and that changed to the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, you got a change of the law. That's why we don't follow the Old Testament. We follow the New Testament. The laws of the Old Testament involve the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood, but the law of Christ involves the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we've got a different law. Verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken belong to, an, <clears throat> belong to another tribe, of which no man has ever served at the altar. Go back into the law of Moses. You had the twelve tribes. You had the tribe of Dan and Naphtali, etc., etc. You don't read anybody from other tribes serving at the altar in the sacrifices of the law of Moses. No, it was only of the tribe of Levi. Not Judah, not Dan, not uh, uh, Gad, etc. For it is evident that the Lord Jesus sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. That is, Moses was silent. Which, by the way, the silence of God is not permissive. Sometimes people think, well, if God didn't specifically say thou shalt not, well, then we can do it. No, the silence of God is prohibitive. God said, you take, you take priest of the tribe of Levi. He didn't have to come back and say, no, you don't take priest of the tribe of Judah, and don't take priest of the tribe of Dan, and don't take a priest of the tribe of Naphtali, etc. He didn't have to. He was silent. He says, you take priest of the tribe of Levi. And the silence was prohibitive. I mean, if you have to give a thou shalt not, like the Lord's Supper, God tells us to eat the bread and drink the cup, the, uh, the fruit of the vine, he doesn't have to say, well, thou shalt not have ice cream, and thou shalt not have cake, and thou shalt not have Coca-Cola on the Lord's table. He doesn't have to. He tells us what we're to have. That is, we're to have the bread, and we're to have the fruit of the vine. His silence is prohibitive. And so uh, the writer goes on to say, verse 15, And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, because Psalm 110 is in the Bible. I mean, was God just running out of stuff, and he just sort of writing stuff? Just sort of kind of filler? No, that's not the way God does. There are plenty of times, in, especially in elementary school, we, we go home for a summer break, and we come in on the fall, usually in September, and the teacher would say, okay, let's all write a page of what we did this summer. She said, a page. And I'd be sitting there writing, I'd write a couple of three sentences, and it's like, but she said, a page. And so it was just like, then you just sort of write stuff and just sort of maybe say it a different way, just to kind of fill up the page. That's not the way God, when God inspired these writers, it wasn't just to kind of fill up the page. Everything that God would say would have significance and importance. And Psalm 110 is one of those verses, very highly significant. There's going to be some priest after the order of Melchizedek. What's this, what's this about? Well, it's about the Messiah. 
who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. It is symbolic. Uh, uh, Melchizedek was symbolic of the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever. Uh, it doesn't mean eternally, but forever throughout the appointed time. That is, throughout, uh, while, world, while the world exists, Jesus would be this great high priest. Serving in this capacity. The priest hood of Jesus Christ that, that, that Paul and Peter and the saints of the New Testament era, that they would come through that great high priest? Well, that's the same great high priest that we go through today in 2021. Same priesthood. In verse 18, for there is verily an annulment of the previous commandment because of the weakness and the useful use, uselessness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope, uh, hope did, by which we draw near unto God. You see, what was talked about in the Old Testament, this whole idea of the Levitical priesthood and these sacrifices, they foreshadow what was to be perfect and complete in the New Testament order under Jesus Christ. For the law made nothing perfect but the bringing in this better hope. And since it was not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made with, uh, without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swore and will not change. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, showing the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ over the Levitical priesthood. And that is because the priesthood of Christ, appointed of God, yes, but also confirmed by an oath. In verse 22, by, much, uh, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. And they truly were many priests because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Look through the Old Testament, you read about this priest, and then you turn to another chapter, well, you got a different priest, and you turn to another chapter, you got a different priest, and you got a different priest. Why? Because they live, they die, they live, they die. Jesus was appointed a priest in the New Testament when he ascended back on high after his death, burial, and resurrection. After offering that sacrifice, he ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of God to be king and to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, same one. Jesus is still reigning today. Jesus is still serving as priest today. And so he continues forever as uh, with an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. See, when we, when we comprehend that he's able to save to the uttermost, that his sacrifice is perfect and complete, is a one-time, for-all-time deal, offering himself in sacrifice to God. And he's still living to make intercession for us. Therefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. They come unto God by him, seeing he lives to make intercession for, us, for them. For such a high priest was befitting for us, who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Wow. When we comprehend the exalted position of our great high priest, it is far superior than what the, 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 the Levitical priesthood is. And we enjoy these blessings. We can come to our great high priest. I mean, if you were a Jew in, in, the, in the first century before Jesus came, and, and, and you lived way off, well, if you wanted to offer sacrifice at the temple, maybe you'd have to travel several hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles, depending on where you live. You see, but Jesus, he's our favorite high priest. And we can come to the throne of God any time, day and night. 
we don't have to wait to come to services to worship God. We don't have to wait to our services to pray to God. We can do that anytime. What a blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. Who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once. That is a one time for all time when he offered up himself. The Old Testament priests, they would offer these sacrifices. They'd have to offer sacrifice for themselves and then for the sins of the people. And then they would do it again. And they would do it again. And they would do it again. Jesus, he offered himself one time for all times. For the law makes men high priests who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which uh, was since the law, made the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Yeah, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This priest of the Most High God. And you see, priests had to be ordained in the Old Testament. So it is Jesus was ordained. He was appointed a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And after order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek didn't have any genealogical records, no lineage, no pedigree. Well, Jesus didn't have to prove pedigree to be a priest. He had to, be, he had to prove his pedigree to be king. He had to be the son of David. And that's why we had those genealogical uh, records in Matthew chapter 1 Luke chapter 3. But for his priesthood, no. He didn't have to prove that. Because uh, what tribe he was of didn't make any difference because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham God gave a tithe to him, and Levi was of the loins of Abraham, and the less is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek therefore is greater than Abraham and Levi, and Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, therefore his priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Wow. That's just wonderful. And that's the blessings we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And that's encouraging to know this information because we can take full, absolute confidence of this great plan of God. I mean, who would have thought of such a plan as this? Who could have figured out such a plan as this except for God Almighty? I mean, it's just tremendous when you understand how God does things. And it's like, yeah, it, this has to be it because that is it. Jesus is king and Jesus is priest, and he is prophet. And we need to listen to him, because he gives us the message of salvation, and he tells us exactly what the scheme of redemption is, and how it's outlined, and how it all comes to pass. And that is, we hear this good news of how Jesus died on the cross, offering himself, making that one time for all time self-sacrifice. And if we will just simply believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the death, burial, and resurrection is... Uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the fundamentals. I mean, it's fundamentals. We've got to understand the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then if we'd be willing to uh, obey his command to repent, that is, make the turnabout, make the change of mind, that, that's, that, that's the difficult command. I mean, believing Jesus being the Son of God, okay, we can be convinced about that. But now are we going to step out on obeying his command to, to turn, to repent? Repentance is hard because it demands change, a change of mind, a change of will, a change of attitude, and a change of life. And if you, don't think, if you don't think change is hard, well, just talk to doctors who have to talk with people about changes in their lifestyle, changing your diet, change, exercise. This is what you've got to do to get things, to, for things to get better. It, it can be difficult. People just want, just get, can you just give me a pill and, and take care of it? No. Sometimes there's got to be changes if you're going to get better. 
And spiritually, if we're, we're going to be made whole, we're going to have to change. And that's what repentance is. Confess Jesus before men, that's pretty easy. Yeah, I believe Jesus Christ, Son of God. Just acknowledge it before men. And be, be baptized, immersed in water. That, that's not all difficult. We've got garments up here in these little rooms, and you can change your garment. Got a big pool of water back here. It's all heated, so it's nice. And you could be immersed into Jesus Christ. And then obeying this steps of salvation, that's how you become a Christian. And then we're exhorted to rise, to walk in newness of life, be faithful in death, Revelation 2, verse 10. And if we do err, come back to the repentance and prayer. And that's the second law part. And if you're here and you have not yet obeyed the gospel, you come and let us know God's still calling. And if we can help, let us know. Yeah, as we stand and as we sing.